1917, the October Revolution saw the Bolsheviks, a radical militant far-left revolutionary movement based in Russia, overthrow a provisional government that was running Russia in the wake of the former emperor, Nicholas II, abdicating his throne following a mass uprising, stoked by issues related to World War I and food rationing by the government. Those things led to armed clashes between citizens and government forces and a great deal of popular discontent with the monarchy. And that early 1917 uprising led to a transitional government, and that transitional government was overthrown later the same year by the Bolsheviks, who had a fairly novel theory of economics and governance predicated on ideas posited by Karl Marx and stirred up into revolutionary practical ideology by Vladimir Lenin. The main consequence of this sequence of revolutionary happenings was that the Russian monarchy was overthrown and replaced by a Bolshevik-led communist government, which became known as the Russian Soviet Republic. The government was then taken over by a man named Joseph Stalin, when Lenin died, and Stalin reorganized things so that all internal political opposition was suppressed, and essentially every aspect of the economy was planned in a top-down fashion. The central government decided how many bags of flour and how many nails of a given length were to be produced each year, and the theory was that they could divvy out the requisite work required to make that optimal number of every single thing a nation might make to the factories and farms and people capable of making such things, and they would thus reduce wastage, optimize the application of labor, and eventually be capable of rapid industrialization throughout their society, over time reducing the amount of work that each person needed to do, and then someday bringing a higher level of equality and equitability to everyone. Equality and equitability is not ultimately what happened. This top-down model failed to perform as it was meant to perform, and this new Russian state accidentally stoked a series of man-made famines and the destruction of great swaths of land because they weren't able to make the plans manifest as they had hoped on the ground in practical, concrete reality. Stalin's government also proved to be paranoid and power-hungry, over time centralizing all power with Stalin himself, sending anyone who said or did or seemed like they might someday say or do something in opposition to his every whim and particular to labor camps, and they purged a large quantity of the nation's educated, skilled, thoughtful, and inventive people to gulags, or just killed them outright, leading to a man-made brain drain that, again, was meant to keep anyone from rising up against the government, but which made the government unable to operate optimally as a consequence. The territory making up what is today the Republic of Kazakhstan was throughout history primarily held by nomads capable of meandering around its enormous geography, but was eventually conquered by Genghis Khan and his Mongol Empire, which then, in the mid-15th century, evolved into the Kazakh Khanate, a successor state 
to the Mongols' Golden Horde, which was similar in many ways, including their expansionary tendencies, which led to this new horde gobbling up a fair bit of what we today call Central Asia. This horde also regularly raided neighboring Russian territory. Russia, at this point in history, being an empire that did not appreciate being raided. The Russians thus began to move military forces southward, establishing toeholds, until they eventually, by the mid-19th century, were able to more or less rule the territory that makes up modern-day Kazakhstan, bringing it into the larger Russian Empire and turning the former horde rulers into non-entities who were captured, killed, or booted into more rural expanses of Central Asia with their remaining depleted forces. This territory and the people in it, a distinct ethnic group called the Kazakhs, remained in the southern portion of the Russian Empire until the aforementioned 1917 sequence of revolutions that eventually reset Russia as a Soviet state. This and other territories that were brought into the empire and which contained distinct ethnic groups were reorganized a few times in the early days of what eventually became the Soviet Union. The central Russian portion of this union changed everything, including its name, several times in the first few decades of its existence as well. But in 1936, this territory was redesignated the Kazakh Soviet Socialist Republic, one of 15 eventual states and federations that made up the largest expanse of the USSR, which also ultimately included Russian, Ukrainian, Belarusian, which is today Belarus, Uzbek, Georgian, Azerbaijanian, Lithuanian, Moldavian, Latvian, Kyrgyzian, Tajikian, Armenian, Turkmenian, and Estonian Soviet Socialist Republics. And most of the Soviet Socialist Republics were located to the west and southwest of the core, by far largest, Russian Soviet Socialist Republic. The second largest of these states and federations, though, was the Kazakh Soviet Socialist Republic, weighing in at over 1 million square miles, which is over 2,700,000 square kilometers, which makes it bigger than all of modern-day Western Europe. So this is a very expansive territory that, again, historically, was mostly only traversable and usable by nomads, but which in the 20th century showed itself to be rich in raw materials desired by modern governments, including oil and uranium. Kazakhstan was the last Soviet Socialist Republic to leave the Soviet Union after it was clear the Union was breaking up, leading into the 1990s, it officially became the Republic of Kazakhstan in mid-December of 1991, a mere 10 days before the Soviet Union as a whole was officially disbanded. What I'd like to talk about today is some recent tumult in modern Kazakhstan, what's happened in the wake of that tumult, and what this might mean for the region in general. listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to unspool today comes from France 24, and it's entitled, Kazakhstan's ex-leader denies conflict with successor. 
To fully understand what's going on in this story, a few definitions and explanations will probably be useful. NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, is a military alliance between 27 European, two North American, and one Eurasian country that was officially formed in 1949 in the wake of World War II as part of a larger collection of efforts meant to limit the expansion of the rapidly expanding and rapidly becoming more powerful Soviet Union. In essence, the USSR was one of two major governments and economies and militaries to make it out of World War II without having been conquered or totally blasted to bits by the Axis powers, the other being the United States. And the Soviets had made clear they intended to spread their ideology and influence globally by whatever means necessary. This wasn't a benign take-it-or-leave-it sort of thing. They considered it to be their destiny to make the whole of humanity communist, according to their definition of the term, which at the time was a highly militarized, paranoid, and top-down model shaped by the personality cult behind Joseph Stalin's rule. The idea, then, was to push back against this spread of ideology, but also to provide military support for all the European nations that had been recently blown to bits during the war in case the Soviets tried to sweep through and take them all over while they were weak and discombobulated from all the fighting and death. This treaty started out relatively small, with just 12 member states, but expanded to its current 30 over the course of the subsequent decades. And though not all of Europe is part of the treaty, there's a process through which they could join if they wanted to. So this isn't something every government can just join on the fly, but they can, over the course of years, realign things in such a way that they're able to join, making this a still-growing alliance, even though the Soviet Union fell apart in the 90s. The Collective Security Treaty Organization, or CSTO, is a bit like the Russian equivalent of NATO. This military alliance was initially proposed in 1992 and included Russia, Armenia, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, and Uzbekistan, and then became official in 1994, then adding Azerbaijan, Belarus, and Georgia into what amounts to a mutual defense agreement similar to NATO. If someone attacks one of these nations, the others will come to their aid. The CSTO also says that those involved in it cannot join other military alliances. So this was a means of creating a sort of pseudo-Soviet Union-like alliance without having the Soviet Union. None of these nations could legally join NATO, according to the tenets of this agreement. So it allowed everyone involved to feel a little more secure against potential external incursions from the alliance to their west, while reassuring Russia that none of their buffer nations would leave to join NATO. In addition to being the geographically largest of these former Soviet states, aside from Russia, Kazakhstan, because of its immense resource wealth, was the first to pay off its post-USSR International Monetary Fund debts, seven years ahead of schedule, and has generally been seen as a success story of sorts, bringing in a whole lot of money and maintaining a decent level of stability, especially compared to other Central Asian nations many of which have been flagrantly despotic in the wake of the breakup of the Soviet Union, becoming mini-Stalinist states 
but without the accompanying assumption that their dictatorial regimes would someday lead to equality for all. And alongside that, some of them have also been entrenched in near-constant conflict since the collapse of the Soviet Union. Kazakhstan, though, has done relatively well, making quite a few local leaders and business people very rich and bringing in enough for everyone else to be doing okay, for the region at least, though not okay compared to those few rich people up top who are primarily millionaires and billionaires, their wealth fed by that abundance of local resources. Also worth noting here is that the first president of Kazakhstan, who took the reins of the government in 1991, when it became an independent state, Nursultan Nazarbayev, kept his position until 2019. The consolidation of power under Nazarbayev's administration, which allowed him to keep opposition parties from forming or seriously challenging him, and the lack of an independent press or a right to free speech for citizens is part of why most external human rights organizations consider Kazakhstan to be an authoritarian regime, despite their official designation as a republic. Nazarbayev, while in power, built himself a cult of personality, seemingly rigged every election of note, and suppressed all sources of dissent. Despite all these efforts to maintain firm control over things, though, and in some ways because, of those efforts, Nazarbayev had to resign from the presidency in mid-2019 in the midst of anti-government protests that had already been raging for about a year. An election was then held, and a huge number of what are politely called irregularities were noted by outside watchdog groups, which generally means the election was, to some degree at least, rigged in favor of a particular candidate. In this case, the winner was Kasim Jamart Tokayev, a man who had stepped in to be acting president after Nazarbayev stepped down. And Tokayev, when inaugurated, basically said he intended to keep doing everything his predecessor was doing. But as he has accrued more power, he has shifted toward moderation in some regards, while also building up his own personality cult and booting or imprisoning anyone who might challenge his absolute power, just like his predecessor did. Tokayev remains the president of Kazakhstan as of early 2022, and the presumed conflict with his predecessor, the former president that's mentioned in that France 24 article, is related to another recent bout of unrest in the country that began in early January 2022, when the government acted on previously announced plans to cut subsidies on a type of fuel, liquefied petroleum gases like butane and propane, typically used by the everyday person for their vehicles because it tends to be less expensive than other fuel types. Something like 70 to 90% of Kazakh citizens have vehicles that run on this type of fuel. And this fuel is produced locally and is part of what makes the higher-ups in Kazakhstan so wealthy. So the subsidy of this fuel, which made it cheap for poorer Kazakhs to purchase it, disappearing was seen as a slap in the face, leveled by the wealthy against the country's majority of relatively impoverished people. The government, apparently, didn't think the dropped subsidy would impact prices much, but the practical effect of its disappearance was that this fuel doubled in price, essentially overnight, which led to a lot of anger and, eventually, protests that evolved into violent riots. These riots saw government buildings burned, security forces attacked, and even the occupation 
of a major airport by protesters. The most recent official numbers, as of the day I'm recording this, indicate 225 people died during these protests, which lasted about a month in total. And that number includes about 19 police officers and military servicemen. More than 4,300 people were injured, according to those official counts. And somewhere around 12,000 people were arrested. Though these numbers for deaths and injuries and arrests are considered to be opaque in the sense that the government doesn't always provide accurate assessments of these sorts of things. And there's a chance that the true numbers vary substantially from the official ones in one direction or the other. Another consequence of these protests and the general sense of unrest in the country was a wave of firings and arrests within the government. And this is where we get to the perceived conflict between the current president of Kazakhstan and his predecessor. Because although Nazarbayev basically handpicked Tokayev for the job before he resigned, there's been a growing sense that Tokayev has been slowly but surely extracting the former president's people from positions of power, reinforcing his own power and authority, including over the business entities that control the country's natural resource wealth, which have typically been controlled by the former president's family and friends. Heightening concerns about a potential power struggle behind the scenes, Nazarbayev remained head of the country's Security Council after stepping down from the presidency, but that position was taken over by Tokayev at the beginning of January, when this new round of protests and general unrest began. What's more, a whole lot of the protesters' anger, at least in the most violent and destructive instances of that anger, seemed aimed not at Tokayev, but at Nazarbayev. And this included very pointed efforts like pulling down statues of the former president and well-publicized videos that appeared to show protesters shouting, Old Man Out, a reference to Nazarbayev continuing to hold sway in the country's government and economy, despite having ostensibly stepped down years before. Some of Nazarbayev's relatives and cronies were thus kicked out of power or imprisoned during this period of protests, and the current government said they were just doing what the people wanted them to do as they cleaned house and took more positions of power for themselves. The current president has made claims, without providing any evidence, that some of the protesters, especially those committing violent and destructive acts, were foreign-trained terrorists, not actual Kazakh locals. And this, in some ways, allowed him to pick and choose which demands he listened to and acted upon, and which he criticized as acts perpetrated by evil forces beyond the country's borders. This also allowed him to call on fellow members of that treaty that I mentioned earlier, the CSTO, for assistance in dealing with these ostensibly foreign-trained forces who were infiltrating protests and causing so much destruction, which in practice meant asking Russian President Vladimir Putin for assistance, which resulted in about 2,000 mostly Russian military personnel paratrooping into protest hotspots, killing and arresting some of these protesters, and helping put things back in order, according to the standards of the government. The consequences of this month or so of upset, then, would seem to be that the current government was able to further reinforce its position, booting many previous government loyalists from office and from their positions of power within important resource-extracting and selling companies. 
while also allowing Russia to flex its regional muscles, showing that it still has influence, military and otherwise, because it can easily put down this type of unrest and thus can act as a sort of police force within the region, while also helping to prop up governments who might be facing confrontation or controversy within their borders, as long as they're loyal to Putin, at least. So this could all ultimately be very good for Putin and his administration, especially as they deal with other regional issues related to their long-standing conflict with NATO nations and with other former Soviet states like Ukraine, which is engaged in an ongoing military conflict with Russian-backed separatists in its eastern territory and which was relatively recently invaded by unmarked Russian soldiers and Russia-aligned separatists in its Crimea territory, which was then occupied and claimed by those Russia-aligned forces. This France 24 piece, then, appears to suggest that there is no conflict between the current Kazakh president and the former Kazakh president. Despite the many indications, there might be a power struggle of some kind going on behind the scenes, with these protests used as a sort of cover and justification for booting a bunch of previous administration loyalists from their perches, which in turn may have caused the previous president to flee the country, something the previous president has now denied. There is a chance, then, that some component of this uprising was either sparked or simply appropriated after it started naturally by the Kazakh government in order to reinforce their power, position the previous administration and president as the cause, the source of all the country's current problems, and to strengthen the nation's relationship with neighboring and far more powerful Russia. It's also possible these unrests happened naturally, were in fact stirred up by decisions made by the previous administration, and the government's calling of CSTO forces was just a means of putting the protests down as local forces were being overwhelmed, which is what they officially claim happened. There's a further chance, if a small one, and no evidence has been provided for this potentiality thus far, but there's a chance there actually were outside forces involved in the sparking of these protests, maybe from NATO-aligned nations wanting to shift Russia's attention away from Ukraine, where it's currently threatening to invade or to commit some other invasion-like act. The theory being that if NATO can make Russia feel vulnerable on its Kazakh flank, worried there might be a so-called color revolution there, as occurred previously in Ukraine and in other authoritarian-led states around the world, revolutions that then tend to shift their governments toward democracies. If that were to happen, maybe Russia would be incentivized to stop menacing Ukraine and would have to split its forces, no longer feeling it could attack this one enemy, Ukraine, because another, the folks rising up in Kazakhstan, needed to be put down before they could become a problem, post-haste. Crying terrorist when something goes wrong is a common move in the government playbook, though, as it can sometimes reinforce feelings of solidarity and patriotism. So while that last possibility is a possibility, it doesn't, currently at least, seem to be the most likely one. This is still a developing story as I record this, so we'll likely see more movement and changes in this region in the near future as the conflict between Russia and NATO via Ukraine plays out further 
and as the Kazakh government continues to reinforce its position of power within its own borders and seemingly in the region as well via that relationship with the other CSTO states. The book I'd like to recommend today is called Embassy Town by China Mevel. This is one of those truly unusual works of science fiction that doesn't cleanly adopt or even adjacently reference, in most cases, other science fiction templates and tropes. And it's a story as much as anything else about language and communication and how that shapes culture and behavior and interaction between people and between, in this case, different species. I don't want to say too much more than that and accidentally give away plot points, but I found this to be a very enjoyable book, just as a book, but also for the topics it explores and how those topics are explored within the context of the story. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Embassy Town by China Mevel. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find my other podcasts and my writings at understandery.com. And feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on most of the other ones. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Thank you.